Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and this week I've been thinking about death. I've actually been thinking about it for months now. The daily death counts from the pandemic have been adding up for quite a while. It's at about 210,000 right now, in the United States alone. But the last few weeks have been more morbid than most. Elections are always, in some way, about mortality. The loss of life is woven into campaign appeals on a number of topics that come up every election cycle. Military engagement, health care, public safety, even if the candidates don't come out and say it directly. But never before has death been so central to a political race as the current contest for the presidency. And it's not just about the pandemic. A couple episodes ago, I talked a little bit about the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her passing was characterized by some as this election's October surprise, that unforeseen event that changes everything. Yeah, that's death. The Republicans were quickly moving to fill the Supreme Court seat vacated by the late liberal justice, and Democrats, fearing decades of conservative rule from the bench but seemingly powerless to stop it, are determined to make them pay at the ballot box. It was just two days after Justice Ginsburg's public memorial when President Trump introduced his nominee for the court, Amy Coney Barrett, in a ceremony at the White House. And that, that ceremony, was the beginning of this election's second run-in with death. Or the prospect of death, at least. That gathering turned out to be a likely coronavirus superspreader event that would go on to infect more than a dozen people in or in touch with the administration, including the president himself. Ever since, America has been on a kind of presidential death watch, with some people wishing for his demise, seeing it as comeuppance for the thousands of deaths they lay at his door, or a possible defense against the many deaths they imagine a second Trump term would bring. This is grim stuff. And it leaves me thinking a lot of things. But for the purposes of this monologue, I'm going to concentrate on this. So much has been invested in the lives and deaths of these individuals. And the idea that the death of a single person could have such a radical impact on the direction of the country just feels kind of undemocratic. If we truly are a country of the people, by the people, for the people, shouldn't we be able to weather something as predictable as the end of a life without tearing ourselves apart? This week I'm speaking with Ellie Mistal, the justice correspondent for The Nation, about what the outsized impact of Justice Ginsburg's death tells us about the high court. And he walks me through the reasons he believes the Democrats must embrace the idea of adding seats to the court and filling them with liberal justices, even if that undermines the court's legitimacy. Then, later in the show, I'll bring on Crosscut reporter Hannah Weinberger to talk about some of the lesser-known impacts of wildfire smoke that we are just beginning to see around the region. Okay, I've got just one programming note this week. I wanted to remind you to RSVP for our next live event, which will be taking place on Wednesday, October 28th. 
I'll be interviewing New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff and author Cheryl Wu Dunn about their latest book. Go to crosscut.com events for more information on that event. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Ellie Mistal. Ellie is the justice correspondent at The Nation and a regular commentator for cable news. He's also a vocal proponent of a seemingly radical idea that has moved into the mainstream in the last month, packing the Supreme Court. With the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Democrats are facing the very likely prospect of a third Trump nominee making it onto the nation's high court swaying the bench decidedly conservative with possibly six of the nine justices having been appointed by Republican presidents. Ellie and many other court watchers argue that such a court could reverse decades of jurisprudence and spell conservative dominance for our government for decades, despite whatever popular opinion may be. It's not necessarily a popular idea with Democratic politicians, though. Few will commit to it, and many decry it, offering other solutions. But Ellie argues that packing the court is the only way to bring it back into balance. He writes, Name me an inventive, nonpartisan solution to the current dilemma faced by Democrats, and I will show you a constitutional defect the conservative Supreme Court will use against it. The only exception is court expansion. That's why the resistance to the idea puzzles me. It is perhaps the single constitutional remedy to a high court that no longer reflects the will of the people or represents the nation it serves. Ellie, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you so much for having me. So right now we're all very focused on Amy Coney Barrett, right? The latest Trump nominee to the court. But in your latest column, you lay out an argument that her appointment really doesn't matter, at least in the short term here that the Supreme Court session that begins this week is kind of already determined. You wrote that the battles over the slate of cases before the court right now have already been lost in many ways. You add the possibility of a Supreme Court ruling in the presidential election to that list as well. Let's focus on that point. Why do you say that? Okay, so I'm not saying that Amy Coney Barrett doesn't matter. She, she matters a great deal long term. Right. I'm simply saying that when we look at this term right in front of us, a lot of these die have already been cast, right? And a lot of these losses were already kind of baked into the system. I think the election is actually a great way to kind of telescope in and look at that, right? Hmm. Um, okay. Assuming that this election ends up in the courts, and I almost see no way that it doesn't, hmm. um, the Democrats, even with... Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg alive and well and on the court, the Democrats were already losing election cases five to four. And that is because Chief Justice John Roberts, who is sometimes thought to be a swing voter um, when it comes to issues of institutional legitimacy, has spent his life and career arguing against voting rights, especially voting rights for black and brown people. In fact, since the outbreak of coronavirus since the since the COVID-19 outbreak. There have been five cases to go up to the Supreme Court 
involving voting rights, involving either expanding voting rights or making it easier for people to vote absentee. And this current Supreme Court, with John Roberts in the majority, has ruled against the people who wanted to expand voting rights four of the five times. Hmm. So that's where we were with Ginsburg alive. So it's not that Amy Coney Barrett doesn't matter. She she ends the fascination with Roberts as a swing voter, even if Roberts swings, it doesn't matter if she's already on the court. But my point was that we were losing these election arguments already because people don't understand just how hostile John Roberts already is to voting rights. If Amy Coney Barrett gets on the court, there will be three Republican justices on the Supreme Court who got their kind of legal starts or a legal supercharge to their careers working on Bush v. Gore for Bush. Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett all worked on Bush v. Gore. So, like, hmm. that's what we're up against, even in a world where uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg turned out to be immortal. You bring Bush v. Gore into this argument that you make. I mean, really, it is, for you, a turning point, and one that you in retrospect, wish that Democrats, liberals, progressives would have responded to with some sense of urgency. You say that the proper response to that would have been to um, to do whatever it takes to maintain the, the Supreme Court's balance. And instead, what have we seen? Just before we get off the election topic, let's remember what Bush v. Gore was about. Bush v. Gore was a challenge that came up from the Florida State Supreme Court that argued two things. One, that the recount that was underway in Florida was uh, being was done unfairly. It was a violation um, of the Equal Protection Clause. And two, that there was no possibility of a constitutional recount. The court ruled seven to two that what Florida was actually doing was wrong. Right. That was actually the that was the broad decision. But it was the but the the five four. Republican Democrat split decision was that was on this issue of whether a count could be fashioned constitutionally at all. For the Republicans to take that position was a clear was a clear choice on their part to hand the election to George W. Bush, while the Democrats were arguing, let's let's just do a count and see who actually won. Um, so fast forward from then to now. The election lawsuits that we're likely to see coming up in 2020 are going to be not about whether or not it's constitutional to recount votes, but whether or not it's constitutional to count votes in the first place. We are most likely going to be looking at a situation where votes have been submitted, ballots have been submitted, mailed in. They have not been counted because of delays, because of shenanigans, because of proud boys gumming up the works, whatever it is. Um, a state will certify its election results, a Republican-controlled state will certify its election results before they finish counting the absentee ballots, which will overwhelmingly favor Joe Biden based on every indication that we have. And the court will be asked whether or not these states are going to have to count their votes. That That's how you kind of understand what the new lawsuits will likely be in relation to what the lawsuit 20 years ago in the past 20 years, the Democrats have done nothing to strengthen voting rights, not, uh, not at the legislative level and not on the courts. They have not stacked, packed or whatever the courts with justices 
who favor voting rights. John Roberts gutted the Voting Rights Act in a decision called Shelby County v. Holder in 2013. Democrats responded with nothing. I mean, Obama was still president in 2013. 2013 is when I became a fan of court expansion. Because you can't, you cannot tell me that the way to move politics in this country is to win elections if you're going to allow the Supreme Court to change the rules of elections so that it's harder for black and brown people to vote in those elections that we are being told we have to win as the only legitimate way to shape politics. Are the Democrats just unaware of what's happening on the right side? Or do the Democrats think that the courts are not important? Or is that what they thought? And now there's maybe a different perspective coming into this. After the Warren court, the the civil rights era, the, the court, you know, supporting the end of segregation and, and deciding Roe v. Wade, after those kinds of decisions, I think the Democrats lulled themselves into a false sense of security that the courts were there to protect justice which historically is not at all what the Supreme Court has functioned as. Historically, the Supreme Court has functioned as an anti-progressive, anti-democratic check on popular will. That's what it was doing in 1857 in the Dred Scott decision. If you think about what the Dred Scott decision was, this was a situation where, where a man was already lived as a free person and was arguing that he should still be allowed to live free in a country that in 1857 was... For the most part, a majority of the country was, if not directly anti-slavery, an overwhelming majority of the country was in favor of rights for free African-American people, right? That, that you shouldn't recapture and re-enslave African-American people. But it was the Supreme Court in 1857 that said, actually, and I'm quoting, a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. It is that anti-majoritarian impulse that has actually dominated the courts far more than this brief period during the Warren years and the Thurgood Marshall years, where it was a force for kind of civil rights and and individual liberties, right? We have a generation of Democrats who kind of didn't know what the court was about. The hmm. second big flashpoint hmm. is, is truly abortion. While abortion is broadly popular in this country, it is not broadly popular amongst rich white men who control the Democratic Party just as much as they control the Republican Party. The Democrats should have the moral high ground, but they don't act and they haven't fought like it for the longest time, singularly because of the abortion issue. They believe that that is a losing issue for them, even though, again, it is overwhelmingly broadly popular in this country, right? abortion is, is is the obvious one, but it goes for all of these culture war issues, right? The Republicans have decided that the Supreme Court is where we fight the culture war, whereas the Democrats think that the where you fight the culture war is at the ballot box. So because abortion is broadly popular, because gay rights are broadly popular, because voting rights are broadly popular, they're like, well, we'll just pull levers and we'll win. And the Republicans are like, no, 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 I'm going to get this anti-democratic institution um, staffed with people who were appointed for life but never um, elected and never recalled based on popular will. I'm going to get them to fight my culture war for me. It's been a long-term asymmetrical war that we fought and we have lost. And the way that the Democrats do that is through court packing, which I'm wondering if you could just tell us practically 
What does that look like? How does that happen? It's how a bill becomes a law. Of all of the constitutional ideas, of all the ways to reform or change the Supreme Court, the most direct, the easiest, the simplest is court expansion. You you pass a bill in Congress. It is voted on in the Senate. It is signed by the president. That bill says the number of Supreme Court justices is now whatever, 10, 12, I want 20, 29. He passes the bill, he writes the bill, that bill is the law. Then the president says, okay, now that the Supreme Court is this number that I just made up for it to be, I will now appoint the following justices and then you play your whole usual system. I know it is that simple because it's literally happened before multiple times in our history. So the Supreme Court debuted in 1787 <laughs> with six justices, right? Right. John Adams lost an election. He pulled it back down to five justices to basically try to mess with Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he literally did it in a lame duck. It was one of the most cynical political moves in American history. Thomas Jefferson, as soon as he took control, was just like, yeah, screw that. Passed a different law, repealing Adams's law. Then Thomas Jefferson raised it to seven. Later on, Andrew Jackson raised it to nine. Then during the Civil War, it got pushed up to 10. Then it got pulled back down to seven. Then... The Judiciary Act of 1869 said, okay, we're going to do nine. That's all it is. The, the, we have nine justices because of a law passed in 1869. You want me to tell you some things that have changed in our society since 1869? Nine is not sacrosanct. It's, it, nine is just the number they landed on. So if you want to change that number, all we have to do is pass a different piece of legislation providing for a different amount, number of people on the Supreme Court. So you suggest adding 10 justices to the court, which would more than double the size of the court. Why 10? Tell, tell us what your reasoning behind that number is for you. So I can make a powerful vengeance argument, right? You look at what McConnell did to Garland, and you look at what they're doing right now to Kimmy Barrett, and that's not fair, and so we should get two, and we should make it eleven. Or just to stick it to them, we should make it 13. Ha <laughs> ha. How do you like that? How do you like them apples, McConnell? Like, you know, we, we can do that. And that's, look, vengeance, I'm happy for vengeance. 10 justices or 20 or 30 or 40, ex massively expanding the Supreme Court does a couple of things that reforms the institution for everybody going forward. The first thing that it does is that it makes each individual justice less important. Now, I don't see how a reasonable person can look at what's happened in our politics over the Supreme Court over the past four or five years and come to any conclusion other than that it's broken. I'm not an originalist. I am not a conservative. I do not particularly care what the founders wanted. They were, they held slaves and were colonists. Like, I don't care. But whatever they wanted, it won this. <laughs> It, 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 it was not, it's not supposed to be that our politics grinds to a halt every time one of these 80-year-old people dies. The, the rights and liberties that I experience as a black man or as that a woman experiences, those should not rest on the shoulders of an 87-year-old cancer survivor ever. So the way that we get ourselves out of that situation is to make each individual justice less important. That means that when they die, it will be less critical to, you know, throw everything against the wall. You know, right now, when a Supreme Court justice dies, it presents an existential crisis for the party out of power. Mitch McConnell's actions, while illegitimate and wrong and institution breaking, 
were rational. You you see when Scalia died, you see why he did it, right? He wants a certain agenda. He cannot have that agenda if Scalia is replaced by a liberal. He just can't. If you're a liberal, if you're a progressive, and there are things that you want, you cannot have them if the court is 6-3 against you. You cannot have your gun reform or your client. Like the court stops legislation, stops the legislative process. That is why when one of these people dies, it makes sense to use every trick in the book. If there were more people, that simply becomes less of an issue. You can't completely shape the laws of our society by timing the death and retirement of one or two people. Where most people end up is saying something like, we want moderate justices. We want mainstream justices. We want the law to and to move slowly and more important to be stable. We want to know that we, you know, we go to bed one night, we want to wake up the next morning with the same rights and responsibilities that we had when we went to sleep. That's a that's a completely normal, moderate concern. The problem is, is that there is no such thing as a moderate justice. People like to pull out Anthony Kennedy, right? Because he broke from Republicans on issues mm -hmm. of gay rights and right. whatever. Oh, he was a moderate. Anthony Kennedy was no moderate. Anthony Kennedy is one of the biggest First Amendment absolutists to ever sit upon the Supreme Court. All right? Mm -hmm. Anthony Kennedy is the one who gave you Citizens United, which destroyed campaign finance law. He was your fifth vote on the Muslim ban, which, you know, is one of the worst decisions of our lifetimes. So that was not, that's not the actions of a moderate judge. There are no moderate judges. There are judges who are moderate or mainstream on some legal issues and extremists on other legal issues. If you want moderate judges, what you're really saying is that you want moderate opinions, mainstream opinions. And if you want mainstream opinions, the way to get there is to have more justices. Because each, each opinion has to be written in a way that will attract a majority of justices. Now, the difference between me writing something that has to attract my four arch-conservative buddies versus me writing something that has to attract 10 people or 15 people, it's just a completely different, it's a completely different beast. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying there won't be bad decisions if you have a 29-person court, but this, just the, just the, the, the work of crafting a decision that meets, passes muster with 15 other individual humans will have the effect of moderating, mainstreaming, tamping down, and narrowing the decisions that we see. More people adds to the moderation of the institution as a whole, and according to people on my right, that's what they want. Do you feel this way about whoever it is that's nominating these justices? Because, you know, one of the arguments against packing the court is that it will begin a judicial arms race and that, you know, a decade from now you get a, you know, Republican president and uh, Congress that then adds 50 judges to the court or 100 or whatever it takes to really solidify that conservative lean. Do you feel like it's just a matter of if you get a large enough sample of human beings that it's going to by nature moderate? Is it going to be worse than what we have now? You can't tell me 30 years from now, new Republicans might nominate 50 people to the Supreme Court and that would be bad because I got to get through these next 30 years. And I can't get through these next 30 years with all of my rights intact if I've got to do it 
in front in front of a 6-3 court the entire time. I can't get 30 years down the line because I need climate change legislation now. And I'm not going to get that with a 6-3 court. I, I, I have two kids, eight and five. I, I can't worry about what happens when they're 38 and 35 respectively because I need them to get through their teenage years without being shot in the back by a cop, which I can't get if I've got a 6-3 court, right? So there are things that I need now that cannot wait for Amy Coney Barrett to grow old and die. I just can't, I can't live that long, right? So how, how is what Republicans might do 20, 30, 40 years from now worse for me than what's happening right now? My second argument about it, to, to not worry about it, is people forget our system is weird. We're like the only people who do this, all right? Other industrialized nations, smart, free nations do not have an anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian force in their politics as strong as our Supreme Court. We're off. Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said, if you are writing a constitution from scratch, don't look at ours. I'm sure there's a number at which point it becomes farce, right? But if you're saying that the Supreme Court risks losing its quote-unquote legitimacy, so what? Other countries work based on majoritarian rule. So if the Supreme Court becomes less of a thing and becomes less important because either nobody respects it or it's all just politics by other means, that's okay. That means we get back to the point where like, we settle our issues at the ballot box, which is actually what other nations do. I can, I can live with that because that just means that it's majoritarian rule all the time which is better for me in the long run because I happen to be liberal, which means I happen to have popular opinions. That's a problem for conservatives who are often fighting losing battles where a minority of people agree with them, right? Remember, all of this is happening in our country, much less on our Supreme Court, because white people are freaking out about the changing demographics of this nation. We will, within my lifetime, within Amy Coney Barrett's lifetime, more to the point, be a minority majority uh, sorry a majority minority nation right white people will still be the plurality but they will not be the majority of people in this country and they are terrified of it this is why they want to do things like control the supreme court because that's a way to lock in minority white rule over a greater pluralistic population so if you're telling me that the worst case scenario we don't have a Supreme Court, I can live with that. I really can. It's fine. But if the court loses legitimacy, doesn't that mean that the American people are just going to be whipsawed back and forth between conservative rule and liberal rule? And isn't the concern that without the Supreme Court in the center to really kind of hold it, that the nation is going to radically move back and forth again and again? Well, I'm not concerned about that for a couple of reasons. One, the Supreme Court doesn't sit in the center or hold a moral high ground. The Supreme Court, if conservatives run it, exists to do things that conservatives can't do at the ballot box. And a great example of this is the ACA. The Republicans hate the ACA. They voted in Congress like 111 times to kill the ACA. They finally got control of the House, and control of the Senate, and control of the White House. And you know what? They couldn't kill it. 
because when they tried to do it legislatively, the ACA was entirely too popular for them to kill. They couldn't do it. They had the votes. They had the political power. They couldn't do it. The court can do it. On November 10th, the court is hearing an argument about the constitutionality of the ACA. And because these Supreme Court justices are unelected, appointed for life, and cannot be recalled, and do not care about the popular will, it is the court, five to four, or six to three, that is going to be the one to end the ACA and take away health care. The court will do, undemocratically, what the Republicans could not do at the ballot box. Number two, in terms of in the worst case scenario of my world, where the Supreme Court loses its legitimacy, you still have the federal government. The Republicans have already shown themselves completely as a party that is not competitive in national elections unless they can steal it or somehow use the Electoral College to overrepresent their voters. Um, overall, the federal government is going to end up more mainstream, which means more liberal because, again, my ideas are the popular ones. As long as you have the federal government, you still have the ability to go in and deal with the states. Whatever is going to happen in the national politics, you still always have to deal with Mississippi. My mother was born in 1950 in Mississippi, a black girl mm. in 1950s Mississippi. And I always try to remember that, like, if my plan doesn't help people deal with Mississippi, then my plan is not a good plan. Because you always have to count on Mississippi to do the wrong thing. If the Supreme Court is not there to stop them, we still have the federal government to stop them. Um, assuming that the Demo Democratic ticket wins here, is this the only opportunity to do this? Yeah, no, this is OK. So if they win the White House and the Senate and the Republicans push through Amy Coney Barrett, the pain and the just the grossness of the process will be fresh in people's minds. Um the hangover from the Trump era will make people particularly willing to relook at our institutions, the institutions that failed, that have failed so um, obviously during these past four years, to look at strengthening those institutions, to look at reforming those institutions, not only think expansively about reform, but to literally put back some of the things that have been taken away, like the ACA, which as I say, it was likely going down um, <clears throat> on November 10th. Number two, a lot of these big legislative agenda things that Democrats are going to want to pass, they'll pass them, people will clap, oh, yay, that was great, and they won't realize that that's going to be overturned in two years because the judicial process takes a long time. So let's say you do your statehood for D.C., Sounds great, right? All for state for DC. Well, it's going to take a year before the case, which has been appealed through the DC Circuit Court of Appeals on some whacked out theory of constitutional nullification. It's going to take a while for that to percolate all the way up to the Supreme Court, probably about right. a year right. at least. They won't get around to nullifying the statehood for DC until like 2023. And then, oh, maybe we should have packed the court. Yeah, you should have packed the court then, right? So, like, so just we'll get normalized to a conservative court. We won't be able to see the immediate effect of a conservative court on our current legislation. And, frankly, I'm not loving the 2022 map. It's, it's as likely as not that we could lose the Senate once again 
in 2022. It's not unusual for the incumbent president to lose seats in the midterm anyway. You've got to strike while the iron is hot. The iron will be hottest for this issue right when they right at the inauguration. And in fairness, one of the things that McConnell does so well, he he pushes forward when he has the momentum and he right. lets people punch themselves out when he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you think about in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there was all this talk about like we need structural reform, we need change. The Senate was on recess, remember? And people were like, mm-hmm. McConnell should bring the Senate back in and blah blah. blah. Nah, he didn't do any of that. He let them go away. He let them have their vacation. He let everybody calm down. And right. by the time they came back, oh, we were on to other things. And nobody was talking about the structural reform. You know, Mitt Romney was out there saying Black Lives Matter in the street, but when he came back to work, he didn't say boo. And that's right. what McConnell knows, that if you let things lie, we people will regress to normalcy. People want normalcy so bad that they'll accept almost anything. So you strike when you have the opportunity or you lose the opportunity for another generation. Okay. I've got one more question for you. What happens if the Republican ticket wins? What happens if Donald Trump remains in the White House? If Trump wins, he will likely get another two appointments at least. Stephen Breyer, liberal Stephen Breyer is 81. And then Clarence Thomas, there's an affirmative action case bubbling up. He, he wants to be the person to end affirmative action. I think that will be his swan song, though. I think he will end affirmative action and drop the mic and retire so that his seat can be held by Republicans. At that point, what happens is that the entire politics of the country gets shifted into a very small space of what conservative justices will allow us to do. That's a very small space to legislate. That's a very small space to operate. You end up with a lot of uh, federalism. You have a lot, a lot of state, you know, states making their own decisions for each other, for themselves, but not in any kind of federal way. That's probably the most likely thing to happen to the women's right to choose, frankly. Um, I don't think that they will overturn Roe in a way that says abortion is always illegal or abortion is always unconstitutional. I think they'll overturn it in a way of the states get to make their own decisions right. about whether or not abortion rights will be available in their states. So, you know, abortion will be available in New York and California and, you know, Oregon. If you're a poor woman in Texas, good luck. If you're a rich woman in Texas, you can fly to Canada. What is likely to happen on the court is a permanent conservative majority followed by a lot of really small bore legislation and a lot of federalism states trying to do what they can um, in their own spheres. All right. That's Ellie Mistal. You can read him at thenation.com. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for having me. Hello there. I'm Stephen Haig, senior video producer at Crosscut. Today, there are so many unique stories springing from Seattle and Washington State. And I work in a newsroom full of smart, dedicated journalists who not only report on the people and news in our communities, but make that information relevant, usable, and interesting to your life. I'm so lucky to be involved in so many aspects of this work. I produce the series Mossbacks Northwest and the Crosscut Now news videos that appear on KCTS 9. 
I'm also part of a team that covers the area's culture, bringing life to artists and musicians, spotlighting the diversity of creativity and invention in our area. All of this is free to you, no paywalls, no subscriptions, but it does have very real costs. Crosscut is nonprofit Northwest news and culture that depends on the support of our readers, viewers, and listeners. We've built out our newsroom at a time when others have contracted or laid off journalists because we have faith in your support. Supporting Crosscut is so easy to do. Just go to crosscut.com donate, or the next time you're enjoying a Crosscut story online and you see that donate button on your screen, you know what to do. Make a donation that's right for you and your budget. Thank you for your support. I've got Hannah Weinberger here now. Hannah works on the science and environment desk at Crosscut, and she's been looking at the impacts of the smoke that blanketed Washington state. Hannah, just to remind us, what is the scale of the wildfires that we've seen this year? The wildfires that we've seen this year are still burning, and in California especially, they're burning to unprecedented levels. You know, we had pretty bad fires in Washington this year, but in California, they just had their first gigafire, which means that a million acres have burned in one place, the, the August complex. Uh, so there's definitely still still smoke to be distributed across the Pacific Northwest right now, and uh, people who are immediately impacted by the fires themselves. And so your reporting, though, is really focused on this 10 days of smoke in the Seattle area, western Washington. And that smoke is really unhealthy. I mean, we know this. We've done a lot of reporting on it. You've written about the impacts on the death rate before. But in the weeks since the smoke cleared, you've been looking at other impacts. What, what were you looking for? The health impacts of smoke are still relatively unestablished just because that field is new, but there is a lot of research going on in that space right now. And people know that there are smoke impacts to your health. But I was trying to figure out what cascading impacts of the smoke may be on other aspects of our lives, socially, environmentally, et cetera. So in what ways did smoke interrupt or delay our lives or impact aspects of the environment that might not be things that we immediately envision when we think of smoke impacts? So I started asking around to everyone I knew at any agency, uh, people on the internet, <laughs> like friends, just anyone I knew who had made some aside about smoke um, and then just started to think, okay, where would smoke maybe end up? I'll call that person and see if there's an impact there. Um, and I was surprised by how much spaghetti I threw at a wall that actually surfaced something. Hmm. So The famous Hannah Weinberger uh, <laughs> spaghetti at the wall approach to, to reporting. I'm familiar with this. Uh, you, you put the call out and then the story goes uh, where it wants to. So you start off your your list of impacts here by talking about the that they really started with the first rain after or at the tail end of the smoke, which I recall as being a glorious thing. But uh, but there are some real impacts um, as a result of that rain. Can you explain to us what what happens? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I don't remember a time when I saw so many Seattleites praying for rain during the last few nice days of summer before, but 
when rain does remove smoke particles from the air, they aren't removed from the ecosystem. They simply travel where the rain is going, which means that they're flushing into forests, water systems, etc. In reporting I saw elsewhere, some sources made really good comments about how when you have smoke that is much more than a forest ecosystem has adapted to flowing through it, uh, you're kind of supercharging this ecosystem with all of these uh, carcinogens, metals, etc., um, and just flushing it through a system that's not prepared for it. The, the fires themselves also really complicate this because when you remove vegetation by burning it, there are less roots around to stabilize soil. So now you've got all this erosion and whatever um, carcinogens or, or metals or, or other chemical baddies ended up in the soil and eventually maybe into crops or other plants or people aren't entirely sure where they will rear their heads. Speaking of crops, you also write about how the smoke impacts the fruit growers in our state. One of the unfortunate coincidences is that fire season and harvest season are one in the same. Uh, winemakers face a particular impact that's unique. Can you explain to us what it is that, that these winemakers are concerned about? Absolutely. So there's this phenomenon called smoke taint, uh, which from the people that I spoke with seems relatively isolated to the wine industry or, or vineyards to the extent that we know. And effectively what happens is chemicals burned from wood in fires tend to bond with uh, grapes or leaves and produce this smoky flavor that makes these wine grapes pretty unusable for wine. And what makes things worse right now is that there are more grapes on the vine this year than there usually are at this point in the harvest because people haven't been harvesting as much with COVID. So this is a particular problem in Oregon and California especially. All right. That's Hannah Weinberger. You can read her story about the impacts of the smoke and other coverage of science and environment topics. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about it. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Hannah and to Ellie Mistal for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.